Discograffiti, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and if you're tuning in for the first time, ask yourself this. Do you think most modern discussions about music lack a certain fire and perspective? If your answer is yes, then welcome home. Please, subscribe to the show and tell all your friends, enemies, and frenemies about this joint. I do my part in that every single show thus far has been completely amazing. Ultimately, the success of this thing is entirely predicated on you guys spreading the word quick as COVID. Tell them how great this episode was. Tell them that coming up around the bend, we've got Lou Barlow rating the zombies. That metal shows Jim Florentine kicking off a triple Black Sabbath banger on Halloween and much, much more. You want to keep up with what's going on at Discography Central? Join our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. If you're a music fan, it's going to be just as crucial as this podcast in a whole different way. You get an irreverent daily dose of music history, coming attractions, insider scoops, and minimum seven hearty larfs a day. We're on Instagram and Twitter too, but the Facebook group's a community, so it's going to be more interactive and fun. My recommendation, if you like what you hear, is to join the group. Then while you're at it, join up on the rest of the platforms too. Then please rate the podcast five stars along with a beautifully worded review, especially if you're on Apple, Spotify, or Podchaser. It'll help a lot. On whatever platform you do call home, you'll be privy to a never-ending flow of ongoing bonus content and encouraging words of wisdom on how to never, ever give up on your rock and roll dreams by maintaining a Lester Bangs-like perspective deep into adulthood. And if you're like me, and enough's just never enough, then you just stepped in shit, my friends. Visit patreon.com slash discograffiti and become one of our Patreon soldiers of sound. Our Patreon feed is unquestionably the ultimate music deep dive. There are multiple tiers available at $5, 10 20 30 and $40 a month through which to gain entry to the psychedelically mind-melting music funhouse of Discograffiti's Patreon. Find the most expensive one that's right for you so we can keep this thing owned and operated by us and for us because corporate magazines still suck. As you know, for the weekly Patreon episodes I'm assembling from this epic, sprawling interview, there's no real outtakes, per se. Those all ended up in the garbage. What I've assembled is only the off-topic stuff we wandered into, which was very often, actually. All right, back to the free shit. Don't forget, the link to our legendary playlist is in the show notes, and also on our website at discograffiti.com. This is an invaluable resource if, like Bob Nastanovich and I, you just hate listening to shitty songs. Lastly, but not leastly, a heartfelt discography thanks goes out to Joe Cravino, who helps with posting the show, Todd Zimmer, who does art and graphics, and my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, without whose invaluable help and or morale-boosting energy, I'd be 100% dead in the water. I can't thank you enough. I care too much about this show to be easy to deal with, so also, I'm sorry. Okay, back to business. First things first, you guys need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Discography is heavily researched and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. We're not just covering albums, uh-uh. We do a searingly honest deep dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, and bootlegs. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between zero and five, 
which allows us all to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. In this episode of Discography, we'll be turning our spray cans back on pavement with very special guest Bob Nastanovich. This is actually part five of an incredible six-part series designed to play throughout the duration of their 2022 reunion tour. Part five takes place from 1996 to 1998. And if you're a Pavement fan, you know exactly what that means. We're in the bright in the corners slash terror twilight era, guys and gals. Moving into 97, we have the slow, lugubrious torpor of bright in the corners. And I say that with great love and affection. A one Bob Nasanovich said of this record, we were going to go into people's rooms and brighten their corners with music. <laughs> Dumbass statement. Have you ever heard the um, a Christian song that's called Bright in the Corners of Your Mind? Um, yeah. From like, I would guess, I'll look it up. Stephen, I guess, heard it, thought it was cool, but it came from like gospel radio. It's a, it's a actual Bible verse. It's just a old Christian hymn. Do not wait until some deed of greatness you may do. Do not wait to shed your light afar to the many duties ever near you. Have now be true, bright in the corner where you are. The chorus would be bright in the corner where you are, bright in the corner where you are. Someone far from harbor you may, may guide across the bar, bright in the corner where you are. You guys Stephen, have no gospel underpinning, do you? Not at all, but there, I think that um, Stephen had heard this song at some point in his life, and he just liked the chorus. Maybe he was praying for the salvation of pavement. <laughs> And we're not an irreligious fan. Too. Were you at a place at that point where he could have been in that mind frame? Were, were you really there? No, not ever there okay, at any okay. point. I mean, okay. come on. Yeah, it was just like, it's just a vibe, you know, right in the corner. It's like kind of like, wow, he's always a freak show. Like, you know, let's let's clean up the mess that Wowie Zowie was. Maybe, I don't know. I think that would probably have more to do with it. But I think in this record, I don't think of a bright record. I think of a very, you know, there's just a lot of sadness to it. For me, anyway, Bob and I have found out certainly to my complete amazement that we are both what's known as 1.5 diabetic the odds of us are way greater than some of the long shots you've ridden against there's a ton of type 2 diabetics there's much fewer type 1 diabetics i think there's 1.5 million people that's it and then out of those there's a way smaller group of people like Bob and I who are one point type 1.5 which means that we were erroneously or at the time correctly diagnosed as type 2 and then our remaining beta cells died out completely and we were re-diagnosed as type 1 and not as kids either as adults does that pretty much cover it that is correct yeah all right moving, moving it's an odd thing to have in common but i think there are probably a lot of type twos that are that actually should be classified as 1.5 i i mean if i see somebody walking down the street like i did the other day actually who has a, a, they have that sexy diabetic look about them <laughs> yeah they all they all do if i see a dexcom i see a pump that person automatically is my brother or oh sister. I wouldn't even be able to recognize those toys, those tools of the trade, because I oh, rock it primitive, man. That person is immediately my brother and sister. Do you strike up conversation with oh, them? or do you... 100% of the time, yeah. Whoa, man. I've had some great experiences doing that. What a cool way to meet. You should start a club there in Los Angeles, here in Paris, Tennessee. I, I think I'm cool not hanging with the other diabetics. Keep it in your back pocket. If you experience a patch of difficulty in your relationship with it, it's very helpful, should you need the extra assistance. Thank you. 
Uh, in any case, my aside friend, from running around screaming. Well, there is that. There is always that. <laughs> my wife can vouch for it too. Uh, Mitch Easter. Uh, must be a me, very uh, patient one. Yeah, she she really is. She thanks, Bob. Uh, <laughs> right in the corners, uh, Mitch Easter. You got that trademark jangle. Congratulations on your wife. On my on my wife. On your wife. Thanks, man. Are you? I don't know her. I don't know her, but she must be pretty cool. It said at the bottom of her dating profile, "Artistic is a must." Recently, there's been a lot of "put your money where your mouth is" kind of thing as far as that aspect of her dating profile. That's been kind of, I would say, steering my life much more than it was when we met. Cool. When you're heavy in the equestrian mode, how is your creative life? Is it dormant or is it sidelined or same as always? You got to make a living somehow. You know, it's the same. My level of creativity is pretty much always always the same. Consistently good or or intermittent, or how would you characterize it? I don't know. I guess I would describe myself as streaky. Let's talk about the process behind Bright in the Corners. What I understand is that the recording with Mitch Easter took place relatively quickly. A lot of these tracks were first takes. The sessions wound up involving a lot of editing. Basically, it was the band recording several versions of each song before deciding on the final take. And then the vocals were recorded outside of North Carolina in New York. Is that accurate or? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think there's like, I think it's called a dummy vocal. When the tracks left Kernersville, North Carolina, outside of Winston-Salem, Mitch's house, um, it was actually a really fun recording session. We stayed in kind of a divey motel and there's a bowling alley, a taco truck, and then this bar that you had to be a member of to shoot pool in. <laughs> they were pretty much sequestered out in a tobacco field. I remember Don Dixon stopped by one day. I love meeting him. He's, he's, he's a legend. But also the Summer Olympics were going on. For the first time ever, I remember Eibold was really like focused and excited about the Olympics, something that I'd been into since I was a kid. That was kind of fun. He was all jazzed about the Olympics. One cool thing about bowling there was that there was a woman who was the top bowler in the country and it was her local bowling alley. And like, there was a huge banner across the back of the bowling alley that said home of America's number one bowler. So she'd be down there practicing all the time in lane six or whatever. And we'd be like down, way down at the end, like kind of not wanting to get too close to her space, but standing sort of six or seven lanes away, admiring her panache with a uh, <laughs> 12 to 14 pound ball. Right. Uh, it was great. I mean, we had a really great time. I think the first couple of days were particularly hard on Steve West because the way the process worked, uh, works generally, and I don't, I don't know if it's this way for all bands, is you, kind of, is you kind of record the drums first. So after one or two days of that, he always refers to it as being kind of off the hook. But the hook was hard for this record. And then, you know, we double drum on a handful of songs on this record. Starlings of the Slipstream for sure. Finn or Fiend, depending on your um, choice. Uh, I would go, I would go fan. Whatever the hell you want to call it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it means, you know, the end. You, know, you yeah. see a flash up on the screen at the end of like really cool foreign films. Sequencing is a is an odd one. Always been an, a very interesting one for me because... You better talk to Scott about that. that that's something, a, re, a role he relished and he certainly would have taken care of that. I think he went top heavy with stereo, which obviously was going to be a single and it was yeah. a rather successful one at that. Yeah. It's just kind of a fun, lightweight indie rock anthem sort of thing, but it's not, and it's not an anthem in terms of that it's really sort of saying much. I'm just saying that when I, when, whenever I think about this record, the thing that I think about 
is the sequencing because uh, my favorite songs on the album are Stereo, Shady Lane, Starlings of the Slipstream, and Fat. So my favorite songs on the record, it is the absolute apotheosis of the 710 split in sequencing. My um, favorite songs on the record are Transport is Arranged, mm-hmm. Type Slowly, Shady Lane. I like Starlings, Cool a Date with Ikea. I've never been a huge fan of Old to Begin. I think We Are Used is kind of funny because it's got all of us sing at once. I mean, Syria and Shady Lane are great. Type Slowly became a really great song live. I love that song. I it love- developed into a really good song live, kind of like this closest Pavement ever came to feeling anything like something like Led Zeppelin, which is sort of a preposterous idea. When you guys hit the studio. Was there a sense of like, holy shit, there's a lot of mid-tempo songs here? There was a certain self-consciousness about making a record, paying attention to the fact that we were on Matador Records and we we're still part of the music business going on here. Um, so yeah, if you think about the record starting with Stereo and Shady Lane and that outro thing, part of it, which was called Javis's Pass, which is just an outro that actually sometimes we play live. It was top heavy, but then we felt like we had a really strong um, song, Blue Hawaiian, to start the B-side, and we had a really good closing song. I think Date with Ikea's very good Camberg song, and, and yeah. Passat Dream was not one of my favorites. Yeah, I would I would get with that for sure, yeah. Old to Begin was, is kind of cool. We, we We've actually practiced that in recently and it actually you know again with the benefit of a really good keyboard player it's it's good you know but it, it's always needed that that's one of the problems with payment songs that had keys was that we needed somebody with confidence and and savvy to play those keys so yeah and embassy rose is awesome and i mean embassy rose the song that i mean is very easy and that fun is, that is that is a fucking great and song. then some people's favorite songs uh, some people it's some people's favorite payment song i love playing fan we call it fan but or you know the spanish say fiend but like uh um, it's also it's also listed as infinite spark on uh yes um yeah. yes and that's just an alternate title for yeah giggles and so let's let's whatever. let's go through it chronologically this is i i think this is a really underrated record for you guys oh uh, i think some people it's their favorite paper so maybe it's not underrated after all i i just know you know this like is, it's fairly rated okay well that's good to know because it's deserving of that stereo is awesome even though there's sort of that you know what i call that sort of weird owl predilection on on <laughs> It doesn't feel novelty style. The Hi-Ho Silver Ride breakdown pre-chorus is classic pavement. And the, the song is an incredible single. I love it. Shady Lane. Shady Lane's probably my favorite on the entire album. One of my favorite lines as well. You've been chosen as an extra in the movie adaptation of the sequel to your life. You know, those two songs in a row, like we talked about, it's a little bit unfair because the rest of the record winds up being more undistinguished. And what I mean by undistinguished is just at the same tempo. So it's kind of hard to pick them apart. You know, when you see Rose fast. Yeah, that is. And it's a real wide, super mellow type slowly is, you know, the king of the mellow songs for you. It rocks, but it rocks. And um, Transporters Range has a lot going on in terms of dynamic in it and has really great set of lyrics. What is that? A Mellotron in the beginning? Yeah. Yeah. Transport is, is arranged as good. Date with Ikea. I love how when it kicks in, it sounds like Boston's more than a feeling. The stuff that Scott is doing during this time, it's really beautifully complimentary to what Steven's doing because Steven's stuff doesn't 
it doesn't hit you in the heart as much. It hits you right in the head, it hits you hard. But Scott's stuff really hits you in the heart. So it's a beautiful, complimentary blending of styles. He's very confident at this point, Scott. I, I just wish he would have had more songs that were good, you know, that were up to the standard of, of these songs. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, a lot of the songs that have subsequently ended up in his solo career music is not good. I don't know how many of them are or the early stuff as holdovers from pavement, but he usually would not pre- present his songs unless he had a confidence in them. He would be like, I'm working on something, but you know, if we, if we didn't hear it, that meant that it wasn't where he wanted it to be to present as a potential pavement song. Whereas Malcolm, right. he would have like ideas and we would try to like, he'd be like, I think this is like 70% of a song. And like, you know, I'll figure out how to way to make it a hundred. I was always wondering if it was a, you know, George Harrison situation or if no. coming to the table with that many songs. Yeah, I mean, both uh, of them had an open invitation to write as many as they wanted to. And, and, um, and frankly, Scott, if Scott was more prolific, that might have caused tension. I don't think so. No, I think I think no, I think it would have been very, very welcome because, again, like I told you before, like Stephen would love to have a quarter or a fifth of the set or even more where like. You know, he he would have certainly benefited from more activity from Scott, my side of the stage. All right. So uh, old to begin, solid tune, type slowly. Uh, I'm on the same page as you. Uh, that was the first one that jumped out at me. The song and, meanders, type slowly. It meanders. Yeah, in a beautiful way. And the lyrics are really stunning because... Steven's always playing word games, but then to hear a line like echelon your dreams and they'll come true or cherish your memorized weakness. That's not fair. You smell different, (laughs) but you know, that's, that's no longer fruit covered. nails. talking to a bottle of dessert wine. It's not fruit covered nails anymore. I mean, this is things that hit you really hard because there's all the obfuscation is stripped right out of it. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that things aren't, coming as easily because you've gotten so much reverence i mean he's, he's putting he's putting effort in yeah i mean i think there's more of a it feels like there's more of a desire to connect uh you know to actually like directly connect uh, i think that's fair enough it feels like almost like whatever steve balkmus's version of a hard rain's gonna fall would be like great tune embassy row like you said another great one killer rock great live good live uh, i'm sure it is i'm guessing that you guys played it at the hollywood bowl in 2010 uh if i remember correctly probably um, and i love the trick out intro as well blue hawaiian you know this is probably the for me the t- this is the one tough stretch in the record blue hawaiian we are underused and Passat dream is not my favorite part of the record uh, i like blue hawaiian blue hawaiian's like um really well named i think it had a that had a really nice, soothing groove to it, and it was just a really cool song. But I do agree with you that we are underused. Um, I can understand the concept behind it, but um, despite the effort, the execution, we never got what we set out to do. And then Passat Dream, I just think was was not a bad song, but just not a great one. And then I think we both agree that the last two songs, Charlie's Supreme and, and Fiend, are good. Very good. Those are, those are super solid. Uh, Starlings of the Slipstream. I've always loved this, the really dreamy chorus. While the lyrics 
kind of hover around Mad Libs level, emotionally moving. It, it all coheres and somehow winds up being emotionally moving just by dint of the music. This is my favorite ballad on the record. Uh, it would be kind of neck and neck with Type Slowly, but ultimately Starlings, I think. Cool. I mean, I'm looking forward to playing it live. Yeah, look, I'm looking forward to hearing it. It's fun. And then Fin, 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 whatever you want to say. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Fin. Some of the best classic rock style guitar work that Steven would throw down until Real Emotional Trash, which I think was him wringing a lot of that stuff out of his system. Man, is he good at that if he ever decided to go that direction. Really uh, good at it. Yeah. So uh, here's my notes on the record. This then is the sound of a perfect young man's band getting older, slowing down, singing in code still, but now leaning towards interpolating astounding aphorisms about aging and finding your true essence sprinkled in between the lines. Plus, for me, the benefit of time has allowed me to see that the combination of Steve and Scott's tunes are just differing vantage points in growing up and how that appears. Scott's are just less abstract and are clearly more about domestic union. I give the record three and a half stars. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's not perfect, but I think it's got some really excellent songs on it. It was, a, it, was a, it was a really fun record to make, and it was sort of a continuation of the same closeness in the band and unity in the band where, where we were definitely a five-piece band. So even though it's conceptually dissimilar and aesthetically dissimilar to Wowie Zowie, it still is like a full-on pavement record. Um, and like you, I think it has it's some weak points, in particular, um, old to begin, which I don't hate. We are, we are to use is sadly forgettable. Um, I don't, I don't think it's embarrassing by any means. That's in top three of all time for, uh, my least favorite for me. <laughs> That's fine. Um, I give it a four. That's good. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's a, I think it's, a lot of, I mean, just, um, I just give it a four. I mean, it's got a really strong sense of character, a very strong sense of itself. It, it is, a pavement record that gives you a lot of a certain kind of thing that's a, a sound and a feeling and for that reason i love it i i go i listen to a record to be able to inhabit it and this is very inhabitable cool yeah so brighten the corners outtakes let's talk about just um before we get into the singles and eps you have like a handful of things let's head up the charge with and then the hex which was originally released as a b-side to spit on a stranger in may 99 the unedited full version, uh, it was previously unreleased until the incredible package. Was it Nicene Creators, I believe? Yep. Yeah. And so uh, initially this was planned to be the opening track to Brighten the Corners, which, holy shit, would that be a different record? Like, it would completely and ineffably change the character of the entire record. So it is certainly, uh, as far as quantum physics goes, the alternate world's theory of quantum physics holds that this album is extremely different out yonder. Yeah, I just don't think that the song was where we wanted it to be at that point. And then, you know, the fact that um, we enjoyed the vibe of it, it, it just remained alive. And was, you know, a variety of versions were played of it. It's just an idea that was toyed around with the pavement for a few years before it was for made a record. This version's it, awesome it, to have, but you know, the, this version's cool. That version's cool. Yeah. And I yeah, don't really yeah. even know if the, if any of the versions are, it's always kind of a work in progress. I mean, it's just, um, again, it's, it's a haunting song. 
And it uh, it's just, you know, that's, that's its appeal. And, you know, so in some settings, it's going to be it's sort of dependent on its background and, and it's the way it sounds each and every time it's played. This is great to have, but, you know, the, the one that you ultimately worked on with, with Nigel was, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's the, that is the definitive version. Yeah, his modern approach, I think, um, did not hurt the song. Yeah, it was probably worth, uh, you know, sleeping on somebody's floor in order for him to do that for you guys. I love reading it. That's what he did at that time. That's fucking awesome. All right. Beautiful as a butterfly. Uh, instrumental, just fucking around in the studio. Cataracts. That's pretty cool. And seems like if more work went into it, could have been flushed out into something pretty substantial. Embassy Row psych intro is pretty cool. Uh, Nigel is a good song, but again, it feels like it was just never wrapped up with a nice, neat bow. I forgot uh, about that one. Pretty strong skeleton inside of it. I do wish that that one had been completed for Terror Twilight. That would have been cool. Uh, Chevy Old to Begin is kind of the Norwegian wood super mix. A discarded mix with sitar or something on it. And that's that's it as far as non-EP or single songs. <clears throat> Anything in there you want to mention before we move into the stereo single? No. Okay. Two uh, on that thing. Two. Two stars two? on that thing. Okay. I didn't even rate it. I'm going to go with uh, two and a half. There wasn't a whole lot floating around there. That- yeah, it's a barrel scraping, but, you know, with the band. <laughs> like guys. No, no, no. But, I mean, seriously, with a band like you guys, you know, like this thing that you're that has just come out. I haven't heard about it. I was asking you about it so I could try to check it out before we did our thing. But you got some kind of cassette with slanted and enchanted outtakes. You know, I to me that's essential listening. I hope so. I haven't heard it. Whether it's good or not good, it's essential listening because it's pavement. So that's uh, kind of you. The stereo single, uh, okay, we got, uh, we're really just talking about the B-side here. West Eakin Drum, Winner of The, and Birds in the Magic Industry. Oh, those songs are cool. Yeah, West Eakin Drum especially. Steve mucking about in his Weird Al style, as I call it. Okay, you're going you're gonna to bitch slap me for this, but I don't know if he's obsessed with Billy Squire's The Stroke. But at this point, there have been so many musical quotes of it. It fucking telescopes out from classic rock references in general to more of a odd specific thing with Billy. So I really need for you to ask him. West Eakin Drums a solid B-side because that screamo section at the end fucking rules. Yeah, this is uh, something that hadn't actually reared its head previous to about a week ago when I listened to it for this. This is going on the playlist. It's a cool song. Winner of the... Pretty sweet. That's Camber. That's Camber. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna ask you. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. So that's his song, and that's him singing. Yep, I think it's a good one. Oh, Maybe Malcolm sings some background vocals on it. It's mostly him. Uh, Birds in the Magic Industry. Uh, the vibe on this feels to me like an Abbey Road take on reggae, which is yeah. That's exactly what it was. Sort of. It was just like yeah. It was fun. It was you know. It was really yeah, yeah. It was just kind of, it was just kind of fun. You know. Well, overall, it's a pretty solid type material for being what sounds like a pretty off the cuff type affair yeah it's uh, cool and it's a really cool one i'd like to have that one six bucks cool all right how prepared was all this material about two for 11. <laughs> you got it <laughs> i'm just kidding around you, it, man. you know there's uh, some countries where if you don't barter it's considered insulting okay yeah, i'm sure there is no really that's morocco like a, one of them yeah like the, thereabouts like in the bazaars yeah that's like how they communicate like yeah. to, I'll give you 1100 for your pangolin. So as far as these B-sides, was it a kind of situation, you know, in like kind of in line with the gangsters and pranksters thing 
where things were not prepped and Stephen figured it out in the studio? Yeah, probably. And Stephen, you know, he's he always has dumb tricks up his sleeve, you know, but still does right now. And, you know, I'm not really sure exactly what he's doing right now, but, you know, he's he's got a um, fully loaded arsenal of riffs and tricks. It comes quite easily to him. Have you guys ever fucked with the idea of uh, actually recording new material and releasing a new record? I mean, it wouldn't. I'd be the last person to know. I mean, Brooklyn Vegan would know about it before I would. I mean, I I respect you guys not going there. I do. Um, You'd be kind of alone there. I I have no, it's just not not my choice. Yeah, yeah, sure. All right, Shady Lane EP. So let's talk about Slowly Typed. One of the best things about the original Type Slowly is its horrifying lugubriousness. So it's very interesting that we get a bluegrass-tinged oom-pa-pa rodeo rape-up. I don't think it's an improvement on the song, but still it's a pretty cool curio. And it just proves to me that no matter how hard you try, you can't kill a great song. I think that's fair enough. Cherry Area. (laughs) That's just complete silliness. That was an early Silver G's song from like the first month that Silver G's existed. From 91 or two? Yeah, way back, way back, yeah. 90. It was just like, you know, (laughs) it was just a funny Silver G's song that had never been recorded. Or that maybe had been recorded on some cassette, David, like the version that... um, so he never sent it to Drag City or Drag City didn't want to put it out or something like that. But yeah, Stephen co-wrote that with David originally. Um, and then he, whatever twists and turns he put on it for this this release was just like, just like, gotta have a song. You know, he's too cherry area. <laughs> There's not much to it, really. It's, it's just uh, I didn't know that that was the, uh, the derivation of it. But actually, in my notes... Uh, it says it sounds like a jam room Tascam tape. That's yep, exactly. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Which is good. That's not a slight at all. No. Uh, Want to mess you around? That's a sweet little rocker that could have been more had you guys put more into it. Yeah, I think it's cool. exactly that. That's accurate. That's we didn't put much into it, but it's yeah, it is cool. Uh, and then no tan lines, which is pretty cool. You know, tan lines is great. Um, oh, is that your favorite on here? It's just, I think it's good. I mean, I, I just think, uh, yeah, I like it. Overall, what do you give this thing? Three. All right, I go two and a half. Um, all right, recorded in 1997, the Spit on a Stranger single. All right, my man, here we go, talking about this fucking song, which uh, is certainly an oddity. Spit in your on a Stranger? No, not Spit on a Stranger. Harness Your Hopes. At last count. Oh, Harness Your Hopes. Harness Your Hopes was always a really cool song that probably should have have been on the record instead of We Are Underused. Who knows why it wasn't? Um, I think that, I'm not really sure why, but. um, By the way, this is your best EP in quite some time. You know, this is just one of those things, you know, I've heard the stories, you know, of how this happened. At last count, Harness Your Hopes had experienced 78,678,291 streams. That last one, by the way, is mine because it's literally the only thing in your discography that I streamed in preparation for this episode. It's a really cool song. I don't think it's your best song, but it's it's interesting how these kinds of things happen. And let's hope that you guys have more, you know, interesting, weird little successes like this happening. Uh, Roll With The Wind 
As far as I'm concerned, you know, it's as good as Harness Your Hopes. The same thing that happened with Harness Your Hopes could have happened with this one. The porpoise and the hand grenade, in all honesty, this kind of just sounds like a bunch of farts to me. Oh my God, that's one of Steve West's favorite songs. Is it really? Yeah. He insists on, so far he's failed, but he insists on, he just loves it. He loves playing the drums on it. He loves, he loves the groove. It's kind of beachy, I, I think, in a way. We don't have that many kind of beachy songs. Um, I think it's kind of cool in its own way. But yeah, for some reason, Steve West, maybe he likes things light and refreshing. I have nothing Listen. against farts. I think farts are a lot of fun. I have a three-year-old boy, so... You know, we we both collectively love farts. Um, That's overall, good to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, overall, "Spit on a Stranger" single is um, is really strong. I give it four and a quarter stars. Four. You give it four. four? Yep. All right. Then on one of your, uh, I guess it's the Nicene Creators or whatever it is, KCRW Morning Becomes Eclectic, February 25th, 1997. Uh, Neil Haggerty meets John Spencer in a non-alcoholic bar. Destroy Matar Day. It's a rainy day, sunshine girl, and maybe, maybe. The only thing I really want to talk about um, or just mention is how great it's a rainy day, sunshine girl is. You know, the original... Uh, by um, by Faust is is excellent, and you guys do a, a kicking version of it. Well, you know it was a real risk to try to cover something that amazing. So, and Stephen uh, Faust be certainly in his top fifty favorite bands and biggest influences. So there you go. Yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty stomping. It's really <laughs> just you. about getting that stomping backbeat. You know, it's that that primitive prehistoric thing. If it's right. too slick, it's just, it's immediately, there's no way to make it work. I agree. Well, you do it justice, my friend. So August 21st, 1997, um, John Peel. <clears throat> so, you know, this is, this was released on the Major Leagues EP, and it's not like old stuff you did with him. These are songs that you can find on other releases. Date with Ikea, Fan, uh, Grave Architecture, and The Classical. Is that not your final John Peel session? I think so. I think this last one, I think at that point we were pretty comfortable in there and I don't think it's that that's a bad recording at all. Then uh, in 97, God Save the Clean Flying Nun Records compilation. It's funny, initially when Kanberg said he was interested in doing this show, his first uh, inclination was to do the clean. And I actually convinced him to, you know, let's options open and talk about other possibilities that's probably one of his favorite bands of all time we all love the queen uh Odd you guys do oddity for this comp i give it uh two and a half stars it's cool not really uh essential category style pavement but it's still pretty solid nowhere near as good as the original two and a half stars two stars yeah oh we were about to agree all right well you <laughs> like dissent I, that's where we can agree all right 1998, the, the only thing that comes out during that year, posthumously, as far as the band goes, demos that uh, Malcolmus had had stored up. So there's a whole bunch of things on the, the Terra Twilight packaging. I'm not even going to go through it here, but let's see. There's In July 98, there's a demo um, at Jackpot Recording Studio in Portland for You Are a Light. There's also rehearsal demos recorded at Rex Ritterer of the band Jessamine's House in Portland. And then in October... Uh, recordings from Echo Canyon, the Sonic Youth rehearsal recording space in New York. Yeah, they were all just basically part of attempts to try to make Terra Twilight before we went to the studio that we actually finished it in. So I guess there are kind of glimpses into why 
you know, that where we did, not only where we were with this stuff, like recently, when probably, it came like no, 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 no. Okay. No. So, I mean, what, what I don't really, personally don't really see any point in it from, from my standpoint. I mean, it's not like it would bring back bad memories, but it's not going to really to kind of do anything for me. So during this time in 98, uh, when you guys are getting back together and kicking the tunes around in the studio, <clears throat> was there a feeling like uh oh or or was it just any other kind of pavement session no it was a bit more of a struggle and it was you know sort of be like kind of um like where we were after gary left the band and steve west joined the band for crooked rain so it was just that same kind of it just wasn't easy right right like like wowie zowie and, and right in the corners and i assume wow slanted was who, who was having the most palpably difficult time was it steve or was it no everybody was everybody was camera was really put off by the whole vibe it's just the band had you know gradually become more um disparate i don't i can't actually i can't sit here and say that it made sense that's just the way it was yeah yeah i, I mean, mean you've been around for a long time and if the guy that writes the majority of your songs and you know plays lead guitar and, and sings, if he's getting sick of it, then that goes all the way down through the everybody involved with it. And right. so just the whole process, the key thing you gotta keep in mind here is he was doing a lot of he was doing all the homework, not all of it, but he was doing the majority of it. So he, you know, basically he would go home make a new record for us to flesh out with him like you know it, it was just like uh there's no way that anybody could not understand his his frustration with being in a band with people that rather unknowingly had kind of started taking him for granted mm -hmm. um that he's just going to make great stuff for us to like you know revel in i mean <laughs> well is it like the kind of thing like uh you sort you know, of weren't aware of it but you can understand his standpoint when you can think back on it you know the beach boys who were my favorite band you know brian wilson is this you know insane genius but had this albatross of responsibility to provide for his family was it a similar kind of thing where it was like you know i've worked with friends before it's hard no, it was nothing like that. It was just basically that Stephen had become frustrated with the process. You know, mostly kept it to himself, but then you yeah. know, it just it just seeped out. I mean, everybody was very well behaved and, and not insane. How would you rate Pavement's ability to communicate emotionally uh, in an interband kind of way to resolve issues? Really good, really good. I mean, yeah. You know, yeah, I would say really, because if it was something that was significant enough that required um, Could you put a star rating on it? Sure, four. That's pretty good, man. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I would say a band like Orleans maybe would, would be maybe like a three and a half. So that's a pretty good uh, barometer with which to utilize. I immediately had the very distinct impression when I heard Terror Twilight and I heard an, uh, an advanced copy, I believe, can't remember how... I came upon it, but I was very excited to hear it and had the very distinct impression immediately that it was curtains for you guys. Uh, there is a feeling of finality to it. The title obviously doesn't help if you're, you know, looking for clues. Nigel Godrich was brought on board to uh, create a quote unquote straighter album and bring pavement to a wider audience. And honestly, you know, he has I think like, that Nigel Godrich was brought on board to um, sort of make sure that the project got finished because things weren't going particularly smoothly 
as they had on you know most of the other sessions in the band's history. It's an interesting thing for you to read because most of us couldn't really read it. We just thought that you know things weren't really ha- kind of happening very easily um, at this point. Um, that was you know my impression. I certainly wasn't bothered by it. You know, I kind of I'd come to start taking the band for granted in terms of the process because you get together for every every new album recording you get to the, uh, together for it it's a, it's like you felt like a different band with a different mindset all the way throughout the entire experience and um and, and then and then when we got together to tour the material it was also like you know a different band. So like throughout the course of pavement there's like you know 15 to 20 different bands going on right there was you know and so that's why i looked at it and the, the terror twilight band both in the studio which of course started very very lengthy process with a lot of fail and in it and and you know some frustration for sure and then the live actually was far better than the recording the live you know obviously we're more confident more experienced the live band we actually kind of figured out pretty quickly the songs on terror twilight would you know, kind of work best live and grow as live songs. And I think a lot of them got better as live songs, which was kind of an earmark of our entire career that some songs were, I think this is the case is just about every band. Some, some songs are better on record than they are live and vice versa. Certainly in the case of just about everything in territory that worked live or was made better live. So the live experience was actually one of the better aspects of that whole experience because you know not only were we more confident at playing our older material or bright in the corners or you know all the way back all the way through but you know we have like a pretty big arsenal of material and even though we had to emphasize terror twilight songs that's the way touring goes you obviously want to try to promote your newest um record the six or seven we played from that album on a regular basis were, were pretty cool live I would imagine that they would breathe more in a live setting. In the research that I've done, there was a departure here as far as process goes. Previously, you guys had kind of used the studio a little bit as a sandbox with all kinds of different outtakes. That's how you were able to come out with these sprawling packages uh, later on. But you guys mainly, Nigel Godrich had you focus basically on 12 songs, which were whipped into shape through like a crazy very militaristic process right there's one outtake shag bag that's it yeah i can't believe they made a lux edition out of this thing i don't even know what shag bag is one minute noise thing yeah so it's whatever so you know canberg is the um is the sequencing guy and you had yeah Nig- but yeah the nigel ended up doing it i think right um yeah I don't know. I think basically it was, um, you know, as Scott would refer to it, he's probably the most qualified to talk about it because I was just in a room um, by myself making noises. And it, to be honest with you, I was quite surprised how many of noises made in an isolated room with headphones on playing percussion and, and keyboards. A Nord lead at that point ended up on the record drums and I would just do whatever I wanted all day. You know, as I told you before, I never really participate in the mixing process. Scott was very, very animated about how it didn't feel like a band anymore. It felt like, you know, a singer songwriter record, which to be honest with you was a phrase that I never really used or cared much about. Now that he was saying this kind of stuff in the studio? No, outside the studio. I mean, I'm sure he did actually in the studio, like a lot of people not telling the people who needed to be told, (laughs) telling the people that you could safely get away with complaining to, I guess. Um, And I, you know, I was amongst that group, but I, I, you know, was in my own peaceful place, my little room, not getting paid attention to, which was 
fantastic. I'd rather work under the radar because um, I didn't have to be self-conscious or worry about execution or anything like that. But it was just very clear and it made a lot of sense that Stephen was focusing on Nigel and vice versa. You know, Steve West, I think his role in the band trying to get the drums down was quite similar to mm-hmm. the previous record he played on. You know, when you're the drummer, you know, those are tracks you have to lay down. And I, so I think, you know, from the standpoint of his performance on the record, which is which should always be considered, he did an excellent job on every song on the record. And this record has a lot of songs that are not easy to drum on. So right. it was very, very challenging for him. So I think that he did an excellent job. I think that, you know, Mark, as always, worked really hard and, and did just fine. I think that Scott was put off by a lot of things and did not help the situation as a whole in communicating his dismay or trying to figure out a way to solve it. And then I think Stephen was just like sick of being in pavement, at least in the studio. I think, you know, I think it certainly is always like us. I just think he was sick of the circumstance of how things were being done in pavement. I think fair enough if he felt like he was getting taken advantage of to a certain extent. So, and then I, as I told you before, I was in my own little universe, which is very yeah. com- comfortable and easy for me, especially in the studio setting. So, yeah, um, you sound like you're a pretty agreeable guy, you know, uh, notwithstanding whatever the circumstances are. The 11 songs that made the record. What do you think the, about this crop of songs? I think it's great. I mean, I think it's, yeah. I think it's great. I don't really like it's It's a personal taste thing, but I'm happy we did it in terms of a record that sounds like records made in that sort of modern way. There's really only touches. It's not slathered with electronica or anything like no, that. No, 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 no. Because that would have that would have been like a joke. So we weren't yeah. making but it sounds like a pavement record that was just kind of like um very clean. Yeah. I mean I mean Spin on a Stranger is really great. I mean all that's the songs a, on their own song, are great. I mean, yeah. I mean, Billy, I know a lot of people are, that just absolutely adore Billy. And, you know, the yeah. version of the Hex that ended up here is a good version of the Hex. I mean, platform blues. And- All right, let's, let's start from the top. Actually, let's not start at the top because that would be Pavement Part 6, which is coming next week. And, of course, if you're a Pavement fanatic, you know that that covers Terror Twilight. In the meantime, the countdown begins because we only have one more Pavement episode to go until we've got Lou Barlow on the program doing The Zombies for two weeks, along with an unprecedentedly intimate interview. This guy is known for his intimacy, but holy shit. Anyway, see you guys next week here on Discography. Discography.